This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Kaiser Kuo, founder and host of the Cynical Podcast. He shared his reflections on China after 20 years of stay and how he has changed from living within the Great Firewall of China to observe the Middle Kingdom from the outside. We discuss why US tech companies, even with Uber's capability, are unable to penetrate into the close and competitive market of China. Hi, Kaiser. Hi, Bernard. How are you? I'm good. How are you back in the US? I'm, I'm wonderful. It's a terrific time to be here. A very exciting time. An election year, of course, and I'm living in a battleground state. So, Which battleground state, if I may ask? I'm in North Carolina. Oh, that's a very interesting state. Yeah, a very, very interesting state. It may very well go Democrat this year. And I'm talking to Kaiser Kuo, host and founder of Seneca Podcast. Not long ago, he's with Baidu, one of the BAT, which is the largest search engine in China. So Kaiser... It's good to have you back. In fact, I think this is times two of the episode number that we just went before that. So how has been the experience back home in the U.S.? Uh, it's been really very easy. I mean, of course, I grew up in the U.S., so I'm very familiar with it. The children are adjusting well. My wife, you know, she her English isn't good, so she's having a little bit more difficulty. But, you know, there's lots to do. The weather's beautiful. The home we're renting for now before we buy, and it's lovely. The neighborhood that we live in is is delightful. I'm making all sorts of friends. I've got a, a brand new podcast studio that I've set up in downtown Durham. Uh, and so, yeah, life's very good. Yes. So what has happened to the Seneca podcast? Are you doing this full-time or are you working on inside projects? I'm doing this full-time. Jeremy and I managed to actually sell the site. We got Seneca acquired back in May of this year. The buyer was a company called SupChina. They're a startup out of New York, and Jeremy and I have joined them now. Jeremy's actually going to be taking over editorial duties. He's going to be editor-in-chief of SupChina, at least in an interim on an interim basis. And meanwhile, I'm going to be mostly focusing on the podcast, though I'll be writing you know, occasional columns for, for the website as well. And you're not getting back into the tech scene? In no, the US? I'm, not. I'm, I'm not really. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I was never really in the tech scene, as it were. I'm not a technical person myself. I was doing communications, which is, is a very different kind of work for a technology company. I was always, you know, kind of the stupidest person in the room. But you know what? I still love to talk to you about China. So I guess this episode it was a long time coming, and I think I have spoken to you sometime in June, and we decided that we'll do this in August, and then... I got back in September and then now we're back in October. So it's about your reflections on China. Sure. Happy to talk to you about that. The first question I wanted to ask is what are the key differences from being within the Great Firewall of China to now observing it from an external lens? Well, I mean, it's a world apart. I mean, the, the so-called Great Firewall makes it very difficult, not just to access sites like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and things like that. I mean, you can use, of course, a VPN. But generally, things are slow. It's especially pronounced when you're on a mobile device. All the things that you would rely on in your ordinary mobile ecosystem just don't work as well unless you're using all the sort of Chinese equivalents. Now, there are other things. You know, These are sort of the, the obvious 
problems of, of not having to, to I mean, the, the, the benefits of not having to deal with censorship, obviously, are delightful. The access, though, to Chinese websites is much slower. I think that, again, is, is probably a function in, in part of the Great Firewall. It's just because the, there are such sort of narrow choke points where, where, where the Trans-Pacific Cable lands in, in China. But yeah, Chinese websites are slow to load here. It's, it's really kind of annoying. So we're actually having the reverse problem now. Well, yeah, but of course, I think I, I live more of my life, much more of my life on, on English language websites, so I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> I mean, just a very curious point, for example, if I were to type Baidu.com or it's one of like the Tudo.com, is it going to be faster or slower? I find it a bit slower these days. It's going to be much slower, much slower from the U.S., much slower. So, I mean, I think what a lot of people don't understand about China is that internally within China, the Chinese websites themselves, the ones that are, of course, hosted in China with you know servers in China, they load very quickly. The, the firewall doesn't cause Chinese websites to, to, to be slow. That, that whole thing works really well. I mean, I could say sitting in my home in Beijing, I could be watching streaming you know high definition video on one website and my wife on another, my son on a third, and my daughter maybe listening to music on a fourth. And we'd have no glitching at all. It's it's quite serviceable. That was just sort of a, a fairly run-of-the-mill DSL connection. Now, the other thing that, that I'm missing greatly is just the whole huge plethora of, of services, of on-demand services that are available. Part of that is, of course, a function of the fact that I'm not living in a, a really huge metropolitan area. I'm not in New York or in San Francisco. But, you know, the reliance that we had developed on takeout food, for example, while living in Beijing. It's finding myself spending a whole lot more time in the kitchen and in the grocery store than ever before. Really? I mean, you have Uber Eats in the US. I was testing it when I was living in Mountain View. Right. Well, we don't have it here where I live. A lot of the problem with these services is they're available in only major metropolitan markets and not in, in smaller cities. The interesting question I thought of have for you is how do you explain your experience to people who are curious about China? Well, I only have about China? two minutes to do it before their eyes tend to glaze over. And... <laughs> okay, you have the whole night, actually. We can do it in two parts. <laughs> no, what I mean is, uh, is when I'm talking to an American person here, typically, they'll find out that I've just spent 20 years in China, but the attention span doesn't last far beyond two minutes. I can ask me, so how was it living in China for 20 years? And, you know, I, I can't even clear my throat and, and do my little preamble before they start, you know, they're more interested in talking about, of course, the U.S. election or the sports game on last night or, or what have you. There's not a whole ton of interest in, in this. It's unfortunate. But so when I, what, what I do try to, to give them a sense of, usually it's sort of a lot of it isn't what they think. There are a lot of ideas about what China is actually like that both exaggerate and, you know, really understate the level of, of authoritarianism that you encounter in, in, in daily life, that overstate and understate the level of, of China's actual development. I mean, there are some people who kind of believe that it is, you know, and they, they see it in their minds like Tokyo, that it's ultra modern, that it's hyper modern. They, they've sort of some switch flipped like back in 2008 and China went for, from a place that was squalid and impoverished to a place that was a vision of the future 
in some people's minds. For other people, I think they're still they they still believe that it's seas of bicycles and people dressed identically in in Mao suits. And yeah, so these are the two things: sort of the level of development and the level of the government or the security's presence in one's life that people don't have a very good sense of proportion of. So that's what I try to help them, you know, get a better sense of. How has the economic and cultural landscape changed in the last decade? <laughs> I guess this I've asked as your opinion because I, I the change is so much. I mean, every one two years I go to visit China, I see so many different things change. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the changes are just phenomenal. The last decade, though, I think. Um, so we're only talking about you know 2006 to 2016. It hasn't changed as much, of course, because GDP growth has slowed. But that's that's not really a, a good measure of it. What it's just growing off of a, a, a much higher base now than it was originally. The real changes that that I saw happen happened in the 80s and the 90s. I think a lot of people sort of only discovered China in the decade of the aughts as China was sort of running up to the Olympics. And a lot of the people riding on it now just sort of were there primarily only for the last decade or so. So while they're still kind of breathless about the extent of change, to me, that speed of change isn't nearly as intense as it was in the previous decade or the one before that. So, yeah, there, there's there been a lot of change, for sure. One still continues to see it. I, I think in, in culture, not so much. I think that there's been quite a bit of stagnation in a lot of ways. I don't see a lot of new cultural forms. I don't see a whole lot of cultural innovation. I don't think that China has been very successful in finding means of cultural expression that really resonate with people outside of China, that's that's for sure. It really sort of this kind of terrible, no sort of soft power deficit. It's a bit like in the last few years, is the economic growth actually slowing down as well? Well, it's still growing. I mean, there's no question. If you discount significantly uh, the official numbers, which I actually would not not really do from what I see and feel and sense without going out there and actually tallying things up myself, it's still certainly feels like it's growing fast. But yeah, I mean, objectively, the growth has slowed. You know, it's it's no longer the double-digit growth that we saw during the decade of the 90s and the first decade of, of the 21st century. But it's, you know, nonetheless impressive. I think that, that most developing countries in the world would still be really envious of, of the levels of economic growth that China is still enjoying. But more important than just sort of the growth, the, the rebalancing that China has long pursued you know, a shift away from, well, first export-led. It hasn't been export-led for a very long time, but toward, you know, investment-led growth and toward consumption, toward services. That is is very obvious to anyone who lives there. That has been, you know, real. It's it's not just in the number of, of express delivery packages that you see, you know, showing up on your door all, all the time. Or it's, it's in and everything. Just the, the nature of the economy has changed. The service sector has grown really appreciably. You know, in, in 2015, it, the tertiary sector of the economy passed the 50% mark in terms of its contributions to GDP for the first time. And I think that uh, for, I think the last five years, it has been the largest contributing sector of the economy, bigger than the primary or the secondary sectors, so bigger than agriculture, bigger than manufacturing and, 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 and what have you, construction and all that. 
is the current growth going to be mainly from domestic or is it going to try to export more of its current economy activity out to the world? Now, I think export the age of, of, of Chinese exports is largely a thing of the past. I think that China can't. I mean, I think it, it really it isn't something that, that China can at this point decide, OK, I'm going to turn up exports again. It's not like they can devalue the RMB and expect export earnings to really rise appreciably. That's no longer really in the cards. They tried to do that in 2009, but there, there really wasn't, weren't any takers. It was just the rest of the, the global economy was just simply, you know, too weak to absorb that. It's changing, you know, it's going to, I think that this is the direction it's going to be. Now, of course, like I said, the, the, the contribution to the tertiary sector was only 50%. I mean, that still doesn't even come close to what you have in Western Europe or the United States, where, you know, you have uh, services and consumption just accounting for, you know, 80% or more, 90%. One interesting phenomenon I'm observing is the international recognition of Chinese writers and scientists. I mean, last year, there was the Hugo Prize that was won by Liu Qixing for The Three-Body Problem, and also two Nobel Prizes as well. Yeah, it's a great book. Does that mean China is now making an impact as an intellectual capital of the world, similar to the US? Well, first of all, I would hesitate to use, you know, the Hugo Awards or, or any other science fiction as... Nobel Prizes? I mean, we are talking about Nobel Prizes and that. I mean, it's difficult to win a Hugo Award from anywhere else. I mean, sure. having China to win it for the first time is actually quite impressive. Yeah, I don't think it's a real good benchmark for, for China's scientific contributions, though. Neither maybe are the Nobels. Well, the Nobels, again, you know, it's it's been very... We've had Tuyoyo, who won one, of course, for, for Artemis and in, uh you know, for finding a very effective way to treat. Uh, but, you know, this was, again, this was a discovery that was made in the 1970s, right? This is, it's a lagging indicator. It's a terribly lagging in indicator. It's really hard to get a, a measure on China's actual scientific prowess right now. For every article that you read about massive amounts of money being plowed into basic research, for every article you read about the, the number of peer-reviewed papers that are being produced, the number of patents that are being taken out, and all this stuff, uh, you, you read an equal number that talk about the, the problem of plagiarism, of, of falsified data. Uh, there, there are, I think, a lot of very serious intrinsic problems still with the, the, the Chinese system. And we can't, I think, you know, look to easy measures like the fact that, you know, one Chinese uh, medical scientist won a Nobel Prize and suggests that this is indicative of anything. That said, I mean, I'm, I'm, I think I'm very optimistic, just simply the, the fact that there are so many, I mean, just numerically, just so many people engaged in scientific research uh, that, that the, the country, as it were, you know, has a, 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 a propensity, or, you know, I think culturally, there, there, there isn't a sort of anti-science, anti-intellectualism the way that you have, uh, say, in the United States. I think this is interesting because it's also showing that its status as a superpower is actually beginning to enforce. I mean, similar to Japan in the 80s, even though the Nobel Prizes for physics, which were all won in the 1930s and 1940s, but it propelled a generation of engineers and scientists that actually build up the current uh, technology powers of Japan as well. But the other thing I thought would be interesting to actually ask 
is about the technology landscape. So China is a very competitive market for any Western players, Uber being the latest casualty to penetrate into a highly closed market. What would be your advice to others who are planning to expand their business into China? I mean, I don't want to just talk about US companies. I think European companies, Asian companies also have the same problem as well. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm only really intimately familiar with the American companies and with the, the problems that they've had. And I think that we're really talking about uh, many of the same problems. I think, if anything, American companies have a kind of branding advantage that some of the others don't enjoy. At the same time, that can blinker you, that can make you less willing if you do have a sort of an established global brand and approach to entering markets that has worked very, very well to capture significant market share in other markets. But my advice, is, as you ask, is think twice. I mean, think very, very hard twice. Don't go into China lightly. It's not a very easy market to to succeed in. You, you mentioned Uber. And Uber is a very interesting case because they're a company that I think did just about everything right. By now, I mean, let's speak just of, of the technology industry for now and specifically about you know, consumer internet services. But we've seen a long list of, of casualties, as you say, of companies that have come in here or you know have gone to China and not met with success by by many measures you know they, they some have been very successful by some measures right Google I think is is an example of a company that for the time that they were in China did really capture you know a sizable if not a majority market share they had significant revenues they had a brand that was much beloved that was in many ways kind of associated with things that brands want to be associated with integrity and cosmopolitanism sophistication and innovativeness i think these are all things that that google did and it's still a brand that has quite a bit of recognition but what i think we need to realize is is that with all of these companies having come in and and you know many of them gone running from china with their tail between their legs there's a really well-marked minefield now people know where the pitfalls are, where other companies have fallen down. The playbook for that is pretty well accepted now. You don't structure it so that your team on the ground in China has a really long decision cycle that it needs to go all the way back up to the top, back in Sunnyvale or in Mountain View or what have you. And then you know, to, to, to make a decision that your Chinese competitor can take in three minutes in a stand-up meeting. You don't use a one-size-fits-all approach. You understand that your your product is going to have to fit the very, very, you know, the idiosyncratic contours of the Chinese topography. You understand that you are up against really scrappy and often, frankly, you know, ethically unconstrained Chinese companies that, that are going to do everything they can in their power to undermine you to, you know, use the whatever tools they, they have available to them to, to stick it to you. Now, even with all this knowledge and knowing that you need to have, let's just look at Uber, right? They had the right partner in China. They, they partnered with Baidu, major map provider, the you know the, the, the biggest market share in maps that has a payment system, has all the right things, government connections, all these things. They 
did tailor their product to the Chinese market. They did give their local team considerable autonomy. They were extremely well-funded. They, too, kind of weren't exactly ethically constrained in a lot of ways. And they didn't win all the same. I wouldn't say they lost exactly either. I mean, the $2 billion that they plowed into China is now worth $7 billion, So if that's a loss, I'll happily lose, too. But they're uh, a very good example of how you can do everything right and still lose. I think to be fair to Uber, they are, as a U.S. tech company, they are probably the one that has the clobbered the highest market share in the Chinese market. I think they have at least 30% of the market in the ride-sharing business based on what I've read with different lo- local and Western media. There is this question, shouldn't Western companies think twice about going into China? Yeah, that's what I said. I think they really should think twice. You shouldn't have a China last strategy because the, the American company mindset is the biggest $1 billion market. They just, oh, I see this one central domestic market. It's not really a one central domestic market. I mean, China is very diverse in very different provincial. They have very different cultural needs and norms. I mean, the first tier, second tier, all the way down to the fifth to the sixth tier cities have very, very different infrastructure. Absolutely. You know, it's not a homogenous uh, or homogeneous society at all. It has a very diverse population there. As you say, the very different patterns of spending and different consumption habits in different tiers of the market. So, yeah, I think it's not a wise idea to treat it as one monolithic market. Yeah, that's, but that's, that's again, that's, that's quite well established. This is something that's, you know, in the first couple of paragraphs of that playbook that I was describing. I think there aren't, I don't see a lot of companies making the classic old mistakes anymore, but it's, it still proves very difficult. I see. Even if they have the right playbook, they still have difficulty penetrating into the Chinese market. But I mean, Apple have a pretty good run in the Chinese market. Well, it was a, a run, like you said. I mean, right now, they're, they're really, they're, they're flailing. They're having a great deal of difficulty. I think that the last great hurrah was the release of the 6 uh, and the 6 Plus. But after, since then, I mean, that's been, that's been quite a while now. And they've lost an awful lot of market share. I'm very curious to know what is the culture working in a Chinese technology company as compared to a Silicon Valley company. I mean, when I was in Hangzhou visiting Alibaba, full disclosure, they are an investor to my company, Singpost. I find that the culture, the way the headquarters are, is very Silicon Valley-like. I mean, has the gap been closed with the emergence of the BAT axis? I mean, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, and a startup ecosystem that's now flush with talent that's coming out from this BAT axis. Or even other like Tihu, Tudo, etc. Sure. I think that, that the BAT companies themselves have very different culture among themselves. I mean, Baidu is very different from Alibaba's culture. It's very different from Tencent's culture. If you were to talk to people who have worked at all three, and I know actually many people who have worked at all three, a lot of them would, I mean, just maybe in a nutshell, tell you that Tencent is extremely cutthroat. I mean, it's it's a highly competitive, you know, internally it's very, very competitive. It's, it's possibly more hierarchical. Alibaba, some people I think would, would derisively describe it as kind of cult-like. There's a lot of their own very unique and cultivated norms and, and you know, behavioral norms and, and culture, culture, enterprise culture that some people would think was, was quite odd. You know, the assigning of these sort of given nicknames as you come into the company and these, I mean, it's a lot of people would be very uncomfortable with it. I think a lot of people from Silicon Valley would be very uncomfortable with that kind of thing. My experience at Baidu was that it was uh, very much like a Silicon Valley company in that regard, that you know, they gave you a lot of individual space. The management 
at Baidu is very westernized. Almost all of them, of the very senior management, have spent a good part of their lives working for multinational companies or working abroad, many of them in the valley itself. And from the the get-go, I mean, when I was a a journalist working in China and covering these companies and the initial interviews that I had done with Robin Lee, you know, he had talked about how he's not at all embarrassed to say that they, they, they borrowed very, very heavily from the enterprise culture of Silicon Valley companies. And he, he was always a believer in the idea that to foster creativity, to, you know, to try to create an environment in which creativity could flourish, you had to let go. You had to kind of surrender a lot of discipline and encourage a lot of, of individual freedom. And he was very reflected in the, at least the nominal culture, company culture there. There's a real kind of allergy to any company politics. You know, the worst thing that you could say about another person working at Baidu is, oh, person X practices pol- office politics. Yeah, I think that, that, that there was a lot of similarity, at least with Baidu. And I, I would say the same about, you know, some of the other companies that I've, I've had closer experiences with, like Yoku working very closely with Victor Ku there, I'm very much, very Silicon Valley in, in that in that regard i thought i should just give the anecdote about the alibaba and the nicknames it's actually based on chinese martial art novels by jing yong in fact i'm a fan of the books i would love to have those nicknames if i join them i mean it's cultural thing right i mean uh, is that the case right right i uh, i like them too but <laughs> do, do you feel that the gap is now close? I mean, with all this new talent that is coming out from the BAT or the other successful Chinese companies to create the new startup ecosystem. I mean, Didi, I think the founder is actually from Alibaba and some of the other companies, startups as well. Yeah, I think there's the gap is closing. I wouldn't say it's it's you know absolutely closed. There's obviously just a ton of entrepreneurial talent out there. I mean, it's 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 manifestly the case. Some of them are doing just tremendously interesting work, starting some really you know great companies. I don't have a direct way to 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 compare. I'm, so I'm I'm really just this is just a very impressionistic thing. But you know we we have to remember in in China just the level of competition is so much more intense though it's really truly brutal i wouldn't want to be in that environment at all it's just too too much for me i i I need to have a life outside of work and none of these people do (laughs) i i thought it would be interesting instead of asking companies going from outside china into china now a lot of technology companies in china is going all of china and i think they have a strategy tax problem i i don't think that there are a lot going out of china i i mean i honestly can't really point to very many examples of successes heading out of out of China. Do you think that, I mean, for example, I think Tencent and Alibaba is very active now in Southeast Asia, but they have to deal with two systems. I mean, the, the, the new generation of Chinese companies, unlike like Huawei or Lenovo, they are software companies, right? So that's right. navigating within the Great Firewall of China, outside the Great Firewall of China is a very, very different play because once you go out, there is Amazon Web Services for AliCloud, for example. And Tencent will have to deal with Line and Facebook Messenger. So Absolutely. Do you see them having this struggle or would they how would they think of competition then? I honestly think that it's foolish of them to put much you know, this as much energy as they have been into into moving out of China. I, I don't think that they've tapped the market completely in China. They should, I think, recognize 
that many of the things that make them successful in China are the very things that, that hobble them outside of China, you know, the, the really tight, close integration with the ecosystem within China, you know, the, the fact that they, they've, been, they've been, frankly, just harbored, they've been, you know, they've grown up in a sheltered environment. It's like an animal raised in a zoo. You can't just release them into the wild and expect them to flourish. But wouldn't they have to learn as well? I mean, the Japanese companies have the same problem as well, right? Yeah, but Japan, Japan was always a much smaller market. It's a different dynamic when you have a domestic market that's still growing as fast as China's is, where internet penetration itself just only passed the 50% mark, where you still have just so much untapped market potential, so much runway ahead of you. I just don't think that it's a smart strategy for these companies. It's just a poor investment of the resources. China seems to have the both hardware and software advantage due to their manufacturing powers, I mean, the Shenzhen ecosystem, as compared to the U.S., yeah, absolutely. where the manufacturing capability have shrunk since the 1980s. Do you foresee they will keep to this dominance, or do you think that they will also eventually end up like the U.S., move the manufacturing outside of China? I think low-end manufacturing is, is, is bound to move outside of China. There's just no question about it. It's already happening. I mean, if you look at textiles, if you look at furniture, if you look at a lot of the really kind of low-skill manufacturing jobs, they've already fled China. I mean, I think what China has to need to be aware of this. So they are certainly aware of this trend. But China does have a, a big advantage in that the whole sort of electronics and, and technology supply chain still is in China. This is very really hard to replicate. A production line for a high-end smartphone is not something that they can just pick up easily and move to uh, Vietnam or into an Indonesia. It's There's an awful lot of really reliable infrastructure that needs to be in place. You know, you need to have just-in-time delivery network systems. You need to have 24-hour power, no surges, no cuts. You need water supplies. You need all of this stuff. But I mean, this is already in China. This is why, you know, when I, I hear people talking about moving, you know, production of iPhones or whatever back to the United States, it's it's kind of silly. There are only a, a handful of companies in the world, all of them pretty much in China, that are capable of doing this right now. Now, that isn't a forever advantage, but it's one that, that I think China can still ride for another decade. One interesting area I thought I would just point out is in the construction industry. I mean, they have now doing 3D printed houses and even prefab to assemble the tallest building within, I think, two to three weeks. is quite remarkable. They're even trying to automate on some of the really, I would say, very traditional industry. I mean, the, their manufacturing capabilities not seen anywhere else, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not a sector that I'm really intimately familiar with. But I thought this was interesting because I, I was looking at this particular industry and, and they have actually done quite a lot in that. Moving forward, what are the forces that will lead China to be a world player and what are the obstacles? I mean, are, do you consider them today as, I mean, definitely they're going to be an economic superpower at some point? Well, I think, you know, economically already are. I wish to say they should be the top economic superpowers at some point. Yeah, I, I, depends on the measure, right? I mean, already by purchasing power parity in terms of, of pure GDP, many people would say they've already passed the United States as the largest economy in the world. I don't think that's a meaningful measure at all. I think that per capita GDP is much more meaningful. I mean, it's, you know, the, the, the sort of feel of wealth in the society. It's not anywhere close to that right now. It, it still has an awfully long way to go. 
I, I'm just not really interested in the, these kind of who's is bigger kind of, 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 of questions like that. But, you know, the question that you asked about what, what are some of the, the opportunities, what are the sources of strength and, and what are some of the obstacles? I mean, I don't think there's much argument about that. I mean, what some of the, 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 the strength is. Obviously, China's very, very, very large population. It's continuing to see urbanization happening quickly. You know, I think that by 2030, we're going to have something like a billion people living in Chinese cities by most projections. Urbanization is still going to continue apace, and that is, is a very strong tailwind for economic growth. You continue to have a large supply of fairly affordable and you know, semi-skilled uh, labor coming into the cities. This is what is bolstering things like the the, the consumption economy, the, the on-demand O2O services that, that we're, we're seeing. This A lot of this wouldn't be possible if you didn't have legions of young men who are smart enough to operate a smartphone and to ride an electric scooter and to make deliveries and, and maybe work construction jobs but don't have anything beyond a high school education. This is one. I mean, there, there are many others. I mean, one is, is the... You know, I think prescient and, and quite wise in many cases policies of the leadership to invest heavily in two things. One is infrastructure and a second is education. I think these are very smart future-oriented policies. China's early and very arduous push into STEM education is paying off. I mean, China graduates a lot of engineers. They may not be of the same quality as those coming out of your Stanfords or your Caltechs or your MITs, but you know there are a lot of quite serviceably good technical individuals out out there in China, and and that I think is going to to make a huge difference. So, how do you keep a pulse on China now? Well, I mean, the same way I always have. I mean, I have maybe fewer, less less direct input, just sensory input, but I still read a lot. I still talk to my friends in China, you know, by WeChat or what what have you. I I kind of keep up. I mean, I. I this is I do this show weekly, and it's about China. It requires me to do an awful lot of reading. That perforce <laughs> makes me keep up on on what's happening in China. I want to ask this question. I mean, if you someone who hasn't been to China, what would you tell them to see? What are the more interesting aspects of the country? Oh uh, gosh, um, I mean, it's 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 really hard for me to get a perspective on this because you know I have been living in China for twenty years, so. Uh, I'm almost the last person to ask about this, but I mean, I, I would obviously say that in addition to the major cities, and you know, the the cult, so you you're gonna go to Beijing and you're gonna go to Shanghai. You should definitely go to the Pearl River Delta and, and see what Shenzhen looks like. A lot of people don't see what Shenzhen and Guangzhou look like. Go inland, you know, see other cities like Chongqing and Chengdu, Wuhan. But then not just the cities, and not just you know cities like Xi'an with rich history but get out into the countryside see what the, the villages look like um you know see what you know smaller county towns in in hinterland provinces look like uh you, you need to get a full appreciation because the the major you know metropolitan areas don't really represent china fully at all how do you see china in the next five years then well i mean i think that it's not going to implode as many people have suggested i i there are certainly problems and you know some of the smart economists that i talk to warn that yeah you'll see slowing growth and and more volatility and things like that but that things like debt are not the you know the the, the lethal ticking time bomb that some people have portrayed them to be um, primarily you know because the debt in the system is not household debt it's corporate debt and that corporate debt is mostly owed to state-run banks 
by state-owned enterprises and can be thought of not so much as, you know, as bank lending, sort of free market bank lending, but maybe should be better thought of as, as social welfare programs that just took the form of lending to SOEs to keep employment up and prevent social instability that often arises when you have a lot of laid off factory workers. So I probably think that this is going to be a continuing story and I definitely will ask you to come back on the show to talk more well, great. about maybe other aspects of China. Happy to do it. So, but I always have the last question for you. Where do my audience find you? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I'm obviously the place to, to, to find me is at subchina slash Seneca. That's where the Seneca podcast is. You can download us on, on iTunes. You can check out the subchina app uh, also on, on the Apple App Store and on Google Play, subchina.com for the, the newsletter, which, you know, will deliver the, the, the podcast to you. I'll be writing there more frequently. You can also follow me on Twitter. It's just my name, Kaiser Kuo, on Facebook as well. And I, I do, I used to write more, but I probably will at some point start writing again more on, on Quora. Cool. And you can find me at bleongcwrbernerleong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and also Google Play in the US. And of course, drop me an email and drop me feedback anytime. So Kaiser, once again, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you, Bernard. That was a real pleasure.